Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Um, Hello, I'm Catherine Sloan, an early career historian of childhood and youth at Hartford College, the University of Oxford, and I'm here with Laura Tisdall. Laura, do you want to introduce yourself? Of course. So I'm Laura Tisdall. I am a new ACT Fellow in History at Newcastle University. Um, So We're going to be talking about Laura's book, Progressive Education, How Childhood Changed in Mid-20th Century English and Welsh Schools, which was published by Manchester University Press in 2020. Uh, so, Laura, do you want to give a kind of brief or introduction to the book? Absolutely. So I would say the major argument of this book is that there was a major shift in how people thought about both childhood and adolescence in English and Welsh schools after the Second World War, particularly in the 1950s onwards. And I basically argue this was due to the increasing influence of what some contemporary commentators called progressive and some called child-centered education in English and Welsh schools. I focus really just on the state system. I focus just on primary schools and secondary modern schools. Um, Of course, grammar schools are part of the state system in in, in England and Wales in this period, but I don't look at grammar schools and I don't look at private schools. So I'm really looking at the schools that educated the majority of English and Welsh children in this period. Um, And I argue that basically... um, Child-centred education is linked to developmental psychology. Um, It's linked to the kind of popularised version of developmental psychology that's about what we should expect children of different ages, chronological ages, to be able to do, to be able to understand and what they should be interested in. So child-centred education is supposed to be about tailoring education more closely to the needs of the individual child, but actually in practice in schools, and particularly within the working conditions of schools in this period where you've got very big classes and like poor facilities and um it actually means that teachers are often relying on stereotypes of what children are like at different chronological ages and so I argue this actually leads to more limiting concepts of childhood and adolescence that actually less is expected of children and young people in this period and also the difference between children and young people on the one hand and adults on the other is widening. There's a sort of bigger gulf that children and young people have to cross before they reach adulthood. Um, That's really fascinating about the idea there are these merging ideas of childhood and youth in in the period. Is there a particular reason why you were drawn to studying children and youth? Did you start out as a project about childhood and youth? Yes, so my undergraduate dissertation was on Dr. Bernardo's homes in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I didn't, I don't think I chose that project because I was particularly interested in childhood and youth. I think I was interested in the institutional care and the institutions of Dr. Bernardo's homes, which obviously provided residential care for both boys and girls in this period in in England. Um, But, and then I went on to do a master's dissertation sort of on, again, children in care, but more broadly thinking about other, other, organizations not just Dr Bernardo's and um, I got really fascinated with how these institutions constructed childhood because they're such closed worlds um, and how often actually they're 
drawing on older ideas of childhood so they're often out of step with more current ideas of childhood so I was, I was, I was focusing on earlier period I was looking really at the late 19th and into war periods rather than the period covered by a progressive education um so I got really interested in um I guess it, I guess as an undergraduate it was the first time I'd realized that childhood is a constructed category that it changes throughout time that it isn't the kind of absolute that people think about childhood has changed and that really interested me um and so I really got into that. And so I think that's where my interest in childhood and youth came from. And that ultimately developed into my PhD, which is where this book came from. So do you think the schools at the time sort of compared, especially with Dr. Bernardo, which you said had kind of out of date ideas about childhood. Do you think the schools at the time that you're looking at had specific ideas of childhood? Um, and what exactly were those? Yeah, so. I think the reason I focused on schools for my PhD rather than the sort of children's homes and institutions I've been looking at earlier is because actually this is how you get at what the majority of children are experiencing rather than a smaller minority and a stigmatized minority of children in care and also children in a juvenile justice system. Um, Because obviously the majority of children of school age spend the majority of their time at school. Um, their waking hours at school so that's where actually they experience much of their childhood and adolescence Um, and yeah, I think s- schools are places where new ideas of childhood and adolescence are being shaped in this period. Um, there are new, these novel ideas of childhood and adolescence start to take play- shape in the interwar period in England and Wales, but I think come to practical sort of use in schools really from the 40s and 50s, um, partly as a new generation of teachers move into the schools who've been trained um in newer methods and newer child-centered ideas um but as i argue in the book i say it's this kind of a, a, ha- a half reformed education that often teachers misunderstand these new ideas of childhood these new psychological ideas or more often adapt them for their own purposes so as i was saying if you're in a practical teaching situation where you have 40 kids you know you can't offer an individualized child-centered education so you take what you need and what seems useful to you as a teacher and you discard the rest um and often that leads to kind of broad sweeping generalizations about certain chronological age groups rather than um actually thinking about what individual children are interested in or like or are engaged with um yeah so i think they are they are very much engaging with these new ideas but they're also reshaped within the school they're not just dropped top down onto onto teachers they're, they're very much um shaping them reconstructing them um and so you mentioned chronological age and this is like a big factor in your book about the kind of really tightly bound chronological developmental model of childhood so is there much of a difference between how children like the primary school age children are conceptualized in this period in this kind of mid 20th century period and how young people what are the kind of age boundaries and differences and kind of categories being created yeah it's a really interesting question um I'll just really quickly summarize the argument about chronological age more clearly for people who haven't read the book um basically I argue that chronological age becomes much more important in the school system in England and Wales um in this period partly because it's the first time that schools are really organized strictly by chronological age at least schools for like working class children anyway so there's a real move towards grouping children by age rather than grade or standard um in this period after 1945 and that becomes more standardized across elementary schools in England and Wales whereas before that wasn't necessarily the case everywhere um 
So, so, so children are group by chronological age clearly for the first time. And this, this is tied into new ideas about how to educate children, which are drawn from the developmental psychology of theorists like Jean Piaget, um, who obviously very famously talks about the different cognitive capacities that children acquire as they get older. So one really crucial thing in the book is I'm not arguing that Piaget's ideas were actually adopted, like they're misunderstood and kind of simplified, because of course Piaget doesn't necessarily tie certain capacities to chronological age. He talks about the governmental age, um, but it's much easier for the layperson to understand if you talk about eight-year-olds rather than someone with the cognitive capacity of an eight-year-old. So they are simplifying Piaget's ideas and tying them to chronological age. So yes, yeah, there's this, there's this inheritance of developmental psychology, but it's also expressed very practically in the school system. Um, and I've now forgotten the actual question that you asked. Um, oh yeah different different children adolescents that's it yeah yeah I think there are two things in one sense they are treated very differently because obviously the whole thrust of child-centered education and this these divisions by sort of finer and finer chronological age grades is to suggest that yes there's a big difference in how you should educate children and how you should educate adolescents um that's expressed in the 1944 education act in England and Wales which um told local authorities that they had to set up separate secondary education for teenagers so before that the school leaving age was 14 but you, most often if you were working class child you'd be educated in an all-age elementary school so all, you know until you left school you'd be with all the other kids from 5 to 14 so the education act of 1944 only raises the school leaving age by one by one year so it's not a huge expansion of secondary education in that sense but the crucial thing is separate. So the idea that adolescents should be educated separately from younger children because they have different needs. Um, so definitely um, the kinds of psychological ideas I talk about in my book that are associated with, I look I look mostly at older primary school children from seven to 11. I don't really look at you know, very young children. I think there's a different history of there that's more tied into psychoanalysis. So I won't speak to that. Um, but seven to 11 year olds, there's this sense, this is a kind of, this is the period of middle childhood. It's the age of the gang. It's the age that, of children being naturally gregarious, naturally confident, naturally talkative, um, naturally wanting to be very constructive and practical having interests that are very much related to themselves to themselves and their own surroundings. So the idea that the child is still um, egocentric, which is a term that Piaget used, which gets increasingly misused over this period to refer more to like egotistic, like selfish rather than egocentric, which strictly just means focused on the self. Um, so yeah, there is this very clear stereotype of the primary age child that emerges and you can absolutely see the way this filters into actual educational practice and the kinds of work and activities that primary school children are taking part in. But at the same time, it is a limiting stereotype because firstly, because it suggests that primary school children can't look beyond themselves or their immediate surroundings. And secondly, because obviously if you're not gregarious, if you're not confident, if you're not talkative, if you're shy, if you're quiet, it's another set of expectations opposed, imposed on children. It's supposed to be freeing. It's supposed to get away from the children are seen and not heard. Children are quiet and orderly. That was perhaps more dominant in interwar classrooms. But it's still restrictive, I would say, in a different way. It restricts a different different kind of child. Um, and then with adolescents, you still get the sense that adolescents are naturally social, that the peer group obviously is crucially important to them. But there's more recognition of the fact that adolescents can also be solitary and need time alone and are struggling. And obviously, there's the older ideas of adolescence as an age of storm and stress that go back to G. Stanley Hall, um, his work, Adolescence, published in 1904. Um, so they, they are very clearly distinguished 
as age stages. But in some ways, I do also argue in the book that if you're a non-academic adolescent, if you're a working class adolescent in secondary modern school, for example, some of the limiting ideas that are applied to the primary school child never really go away because essentially because you're, you're seen, it's like they never get past the cognitive stage that belongs to the primary school. They, they, the way that they're written about in educational texts at the time, unlike grammar school children or private school children, it's like they're always cognitively limited. They can never get to the stage of abstract reasoning, which is what Piaget thought was the sort of top of the um, stages of cognitive development. So in a way, although they're very different they're also in some senses the same there's there's still in the education of the sort of secondary modern school adolescent there's still the same focus on immediate interest vocational education the history of the local area like taking them to visit like places they might work and and it's become very gendered so girls will go to shops and boys will go to the steelworks in Sheffield for example um so there are there are clear differences between the age stages there are also these continuities I would say yeah, I find that really one of the the kind of interesting things um, is that obviously it's like your work shows that age is very a very salient marker of of identity at this time, but that sometimes it becomes less important than other things like class. It kind of switches on and off or changes order in its level of importance. Mm. Which I guess interests me because I think sometimes as historians we can overdefine, I guess, the effects of age and group children together as a mass without thinking of those other finer kind of distinguishing characteristics. I think that's something that kind of from this book that really made me think about um, kind of those categories of age. Um, I was wondering, is there anything else you think that kind of that you took away as a historian from doing this work about what childhood is and what youth is, or that you think helps us as historians to think about children and youths? Um, I think it made me realise just, I mean, at least in England and Wales and in Western countries, you have this kind of institutional school system, just how constitutive being at school is to childhood and youth existing as a category particularly childhood but also adolescence um at least in the modern period that I work on at least in the sort of 20th century um that actually we think so naturally in chronological age stages that it seems to us to be really weird the idea that schools might ever not have been organized by age group but actually that is still relatively new um and so uh, and we we think that way our whole lives because we've all had at least if you've grown up in a Western country in this kind of school system, you've all had that experience of being in these sort of very tidy slices by age. Um, And so I think that is hugely important for our experience. But I didn't realise that at the start of the project. Like I thought, oh, schools, because that's where the children go, that's where children are. But I didn't realise how important they are in forming our ideas about chronological age. Um, yeah, and as you make the point in the book, it's really interesting how little overlap there is between histories of education and histories of childhood. Like they work in two completely separate silos. Um, so kind of moving on to talk about the book a bit more specifically. So the title is A Progressive Education? Question <laughs> mark. How childhood changed in mid-20th century English and Welsh schools. Um, so Laura, I'd like to kind of discuss 
just first of all the title a progressive education with a question mark because it's actually quite a radical thing I think in British history of education to put that question mark could you talk a little bit more about what it is you're questioning here yeah absolutely so I think traditional educational histories of the progressive or child-centered movement in England and Wales or perhaps even in Britain in this period um have basically argued that there is this kind of uplift of radical ideas about childhood and education in the 60s and 70s. And then there's a backlash um, from the 70s into the 80s um, by, I guess, right wing educationalists and right wing neoliberal government who do not want this kind of freedom and creativity in schools and who impose things like the national curriculum in 1988, um, which standardise what schools are doing, what teachers can teach and remove this kind of ability, this freedom. Um, in part of that, of course, is true. Certainly schools and teachers do have an awful lot more control um, over education before 1988. Um, there's much less centralised control of the curriculum. Um, but I argue, I guess, firstly, this narrative there's this sense that you sort of have these trendy lefty teachers and then the right-wing government and the right-wing government oppresses and squashes the teachers and that also hurts children who are also being benefited by this this freedom in education in schools and one big thing I argue in the book is that teachers are never necessarily on board with this like often teachers actually find it coercive that they're being forced to adopt certain child-centered ideas and practices they actually see it as a threat to their professional identity as teachers um they define teaching as craft knowledge as something that you learn as you do it um and you get better as you do more of it and actually they experience child-centered innovation not necessarily as like freeing but actually as a sort of set of theoretical knowledge that's being forced upon them um which doesn't mean they didn't do it because obviously i argue that they do to an extent incorporate child-centered practice but it's not always enthusiastically and sometimes this leads to it being kind of half-hearted as i discuss in the book um but then the other thing is questioning i guess the word progressive which is um as Emily Robinson's work points out, is a really contested word that changes its meaning in different contexts also across the course of the 20th century. It's also possibly particularly confusing for um, any American listeners or historians. Obviously, the progressive era in America is different from how we use progressive in perhaps the context of Britain. Um, but yeah, I suggest that what do we mean by a progressive education? Is it actually progressive for children and young people? Um, and I guess I question, so I don't suggest that it's totally negative, but I guess I question um, how far this actually promotes the real freedom of young people to choose what they do in school and how they learn and how far actually it's just the in- installation of another set of ideas made by adults about how children, and young people should learn what they should be doing. It's a different set of ideas, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it suits everyone better. And it also, as I, as I suggested, brings a large kind of set of limiting concepts of childhood and adolescence that don't promote the autonomy of children and young people. Um, and it's internally very contradictory because child-centered educationists often say that they want to promote freedom for young people, they want to give the individual child autonomy, but they still prescribe what children should be interested in and what they should be doing in school. Um, so that's one sort of problem I get into in the book. Like, is it really, is it progressive? Um, Often people also mix up, I think, with the, the permissive shift. So they say it's progressive and it's permissive. And progressive is just not the same as permissive. Um, I don't think there is a permissive shift towards children, young people in schools in this period anyway. Um, 
because children and young people do not have greater control of their education in this in this period than they did before really there were a couple of innovations very late in the period like school councils but as the um the NUSS, the National Union of School Students, say, who, who emerged in the 70s, they say, well, actually, school councils are just tokenistic. We don't actually have any power. We just are there. And they claim they're involving us, but they're not. And the same way, you know, in all the, you know, I proposed this book, I read an awful lot of teaching guides and research studies and books on child-centered education. It's very, very, very unusual for child-centered educationists in this period to ever have done any research or have asked young people what they want to do at school. Um, it's all top down and based on perhaps observation of young people, perhaps work with young people, but not actually asking them directly or involving them. So there's no role for them in constructing child-centered education. It's really fascinating about the idea that that kind of creating this idea of the child where the child is completely not involved, but still feeling very deeply that it is child-centered because it is so deeply contradictory, but I guess is so commonplace. We can't see that contradiction. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit for anyone who's more international about how the British education system was organised at the time, because one of the things that your book does really well is it looks at kind of state provided education, which is often really marginalised in our history of education. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and about how education was structured and what you were looking at. Yeah, I apologise for international listeners. I'm sure I've already used terms that are unfamiliar to you. It is, it is, I must say, even British people, I think, really struggle to understand our education system. It is very confusing. Um, in the period that I look at, um, I mean, the book obviously covers the interwar period as well. But I guess for the purposes of this, I'll focus really on our post-war education system, which is set up to, to a degree by the 1944 Education Act. As I've said, this empowered local authorities and quite required local authorities to provide separate secondary education it didn't tell them they had to do this but most school most local authorities did in practice adopt either a bipartite or a tripartite, a tripartite system so they either provided grammars in secondary modern schools so one set of state schools grammar schools meant for the highest ability students often um, admitted through the 11 plus which they would take at the end of primary school a test that would um design them to grammar schools and then the rest of the students would be in the secondary modern schools so they would be for the rest of the kids um some local authorities also had technical schools which is the third leg of the tripartite system meant for those who had skill and particularly in sort of like practical craft related things but in reality there were not very many technical schools in england and wales in this period so most most kids would not be in a technical school um so I focus on secondary modern schools. It's where about 75% of kids when, although it really varies by local authority, and there are more kids, for example, in grammar schools in Wales because Wales had more grammar schools. Um, but then also during this period, just to make it even more complicated, obviously a lot of local authorities go comprehensive. So they combine their grammar and secondary modern schools and have all kids, all state-educated kids in one school. And then obviously for... We also have a private education system for those who pay for their education, but I don't talk about that in the book um, at all. Um, so, yeah, I'm really looking at kids in secondary modern schools and kids in comprehensive schools and, of course, kids also in primary schools, like elementary schools. So schools for kids younger than the age of 11. Um, and, yeah, and I think it's... <laughs> I think this is part of the problem with the history of education. It is so difficult just to get, get to grips with the jargon and the kind of systems that we 
have and I think that's one reason actually why the history of education at least in Britain has become so separate from other histories because people just find it very confusing and difficult. That's certainly true um, and I'm wondering because certainly from my I, like I look at 19th century education and it's really hard to escape the kind of public school mythos so the myth of elite schools like Eton and the girls versions like Cheltenham Ladies College as the kind of origin of what an education should be um, and that history is kind of very very elite focused and very centered on sort of like well if we understand what's happening here we'll understand everything um, and I was wondering, like, d- does that crop up in the reception to this book? Does that crop up um, at all as kind of a point of discussion when people are reacting to your book? Um, Do yes, people ask you about the grammar school? Yes. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting what you say. I'm just thinking of what you said, because I think I'm wondering if that's because people think it's only worthwhile looking at the education of children if those children went, to, went on to do something important. and most of the children I look at don't go on to do anything important so hence they're not important um and it's the suggestion that childhood is only valuable insofar as it shapes adulthood so that's why else would you write history of childhood and obviously I don't agree with that I think childhood is important in its own right uh, regardless of what the young people go on to do and I know you've you've, you've said similar in talks that I've heard you give um but yeah um yeah when I tell people what I work on the most common question I get is were grammar schools a good thing um so that always comes up and I don't even really work on grammar schools I, I don't look at grammar schools in any great detail and of course there is a large educational and sociological literature on grammar schools so I can you know that suggests that what I usually say is something along the lines of well whether they're a good thing or not depends what you mean by a good thing but certainly one thing we can say from the existing literature is they did not aid social mobility so if you if you, if you care about grammar schools as a tool of social mobility you can see that that did not happen they did not make people more socially mobile um, um yeah but, but that is the thing that he wasn't to latch on to i think it's their reference point i guess for the history of education in this period it's the it's the one thing they know and so people obviously will ask about what they know um but yeah it's not something that the book is particularly concerned with um but it is what I'm always asked about. Yeah, and that's really interesting in, on, in and of itself because it tells us about this narrative people have about the history of education in Britain that actually erases most of what happened to most people um, who went to like secondary modern schools or comprehensive schools um, or just went to like kind of quote unquote a normal school. <laughs> and yeah, I find that that was, is one of the things that really fascinates me about this work. Um, so kind of picking up on what you said about histories, what's important in histories of childhood, there's been a recent real drift towards people sort of figuring out the impact childhood has on wider social processes, or the, not the impact childhood, but the impact children have, like on wider political or social processes. And I know you've kind of discussed this and had sort of ambiguous feelings about us sort of making that emphasis. I wonder if you could talk a little about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it obviously is really important to integrate children and adolescents into more mainstream, sort of more sweeping histories. So I have no objection to that. I guess my concern comes, it kind of links to what I just said, I suppose, when we there's a sense we 
only look at children and adolescents when they did something important or they were important to something that adults were doing, that there's no historical worth in looking at children and adolescents in their own right or what they were doing. Um, and that, I think, is a problem. Um, you know, in historically in some societies and in some societies today, children and adolescents are a significant proportion of the population um, they're not a minority group. Well, they're not, they technically are a minority, but they are a significant portion of the population. Um, and I guess what I'm interested in is childhood and adolescence as an experience that is valuable in itself, not an experience that's just valuable in how it shapes future adults. And um, I think that comes out. So the project I'm going to be working on next is about chronically and terminally ill children in Britain and the US from about 1945 so the same kind of time period and I'm particularly interested in children who are chronically and terminally ill because I think this really messes with concepts of childhood because if a child is terminally ill they're not going to grow up properly so um what happens then if we think about childhood just as about as just as being future orientated just as about the future adult and similarly for child's chronically oh yeah they might grow up but they're not going to have the kind of adulthood that is I think we think about adulthood, we think about things like independence and living by yourself and being able to support yourself. There are lots of stereotypical characteristics we associate with adulthood. And so if you're chronically ill, you won't necessarily have that kind of adulthood. So in a sense, you don't grow up, even if you might be chronologically adult, you don't grow up in the same way as other children. So that also messes with our ideas of childhood, even if um, they, they, they are still alive. So, yeah, I think that's what I'm really interested in getting at, as how children and adolescents can be viable historically. And so, you know, I think it's important to write them into bigger histories, but I'm also interested in children and adolescents unlinked from adult histories. Yeah, I think there's a, I'm also kind of worried about this tendency. We have to prove ourselves to mainstream histories on mainstream history terms, because I don't know about you, but I'm sure all of us as historians of childhood and education have experienced the kind of person from mainstream history who takes up childhood, which is happening more and kind of, well, nothing's been written that's like actually in any way useful to my work because it has to fit in with the kind of logic and methods of mainstream histories, which don't apply. Like that's kind of the fun of doing it is that you've got to have use different methods and techniques and think differently. Um, and I think, yeah, it's interesting because sometimes I do work kind of like interested in how children affect adult methods of doing things but there is a kind of danger in only focusing on those things mm. absolutely um, yeah yeah so I guess I'd like to talk a little bit more about the reception um so um was there anything in the reception that really interested you sort of any reactions or sort of comments or questions that people had um that really interested you um I think certainly when I presented this research, which I've done a lot at conferences and also at job talks quite a lot, um, I think it's really interesting in how it kind of links back to what we were saying about grammar schools and how that always comes up when people who don't know much about childhood or education ask about this book. Um, it makes you realise how particularly, I think, in Britain, perhaps in other countries as well, the history of education is still, for a lot of people, it's just about class. So nothing else is important, which and obviously class is important in the history of education, as you were saying, um, it's not unimportant. But um, that really, if you thought education, people just want to talk about class and social mobility. And I guess I am interested in that. Obviously, I talk about it in the book. But 
What I'm more interested in as a historian of childhood is how schools act as oppressive institutions for all children, regardless of their class backgrounds. That the only reason they're in school is because they're under a certain age. So it is age that ultimately is the criteria of being in school, not class. Um, Yeah, if you're working class, you will have probably a different experience in school for a middle class child. And that's important to recognise. But actually, I'm much more interested in age as a category of analysis when I'm looking at schools than class but often when I present it to research people just want to take it back to class um and that's all they want to talk about which is a little bit frustrating because I'm really interested all gender actually gender comes up quite a lot and again I can talk about class and gender of course in relation to the history of education there are chapters in the book on class and gender um but I'm interested I guess in how age puts children in this position and actually how age also because children are because they're in school because they're under a certain age it means that people who are under a certain age are forced into this kind of oppressive situation where actually they also become each other's oppressors either because they're in a better kind of school than other children um or because they're in a better stream or because they're the smart kid in school and another kid is a is badged as like stupid or not good at school and they end up oppressing each other um but the reason they're in this situation isn't actually because of their class it's because of their age because adult people are not in this situation does this make does this make sense um, yeah um so I guess that's what I'm really interested in and I get frustrated with sort of more traditional I guess most sociological texts that are just focused on children's class backgrounds explaining everything that happens to them in school yeah it can be like and also it can kind of obscure as you said earlier one of the incredible things is how much time kids spend at school and to reduce that whole of that experience down to just a pure up or down on the social mobility index which itself is highly gendered anyway and um, is really well it's just really reductive of what that is yeah and the other problem is actually I just thought of that if you do well in school and then you get a good job, everyone's like, oh, school was a success for you, wasn't it? It was a good experience. And that doesn't mean it was a good experience. It could have been an absolutely horrific experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your achievement is actually could, be, could have been totally unrelated to how you've actually experienced being in school. Yeah. And my sister won't thank me for saying this, but she always tells my nephews and nieces she had a wonderful time at school. And then when they ask her about ex- exams, she goes, oh, I was terrible at those, but I loved school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the opposite. And, and that, right. yeah. yeah. That conversely, like you might have a great time at school that has absolutely nothing to do with education or the classroom. Um, so since you've written this, have your have your thoughts moved on? Is there anything that you see differently now? Um. I guess part of what's happened since I've written this is this is obviously a book that is about childhood rather than the child's voice and it is deliberately so so it is about adult concepts of childhood and how those changed rather than children themselves um, which I don't think is a problem in itself but I have what I have done I guess is the other side of this project so what I've been looking at since is thinking about um, not specifically schools but how children and adolescents in this period um were a bit later than the period cut by the book actually 1945 to 1989 I would say talk about age talk about growing up in adulthood and talk about what it is to be a child what it is to be a teenager and how growing up is different and what changes so I guess what I've been looking at is how children and young people themselves react to the kind of shift in concepts of childhood and adolescence that I talk about in the book um so obviously that's given me new perspective on the book it hasn't necessarily changed the sort of central arguments that I make but it definitely it makes me realize actually I guess partly how it 
this psychological language is so deeply embedded in society as early as the 60s because children and adolescents are using it very adeptly as well they quite frequently use terms like stage um like life stage or i'm at, I'm at a certain stage or they, they make these kind of references to chronological age stages that I, was, I wasn't really expecting in work from childhood children and adolescents i'm looking at contemporary essays and contemporary writings by young people so these are things written at the time um so yeah um but that has made me think about it obviously from the perspective of the students i suppose in the book and how they actually often play into these narratives themselves and perform these narratives for, for adults that's so interesting though because as historians of childhood obviously there's a massive literature on the adult construction of childhood it's not really been anything on the adolescent construction of adulthood like it's not actually being flipped on its head and um, but obviously children have to think about adulthood all the time that's kind of the point of school and um, can you give us any kind of brief idea of what they think about adulthood yeah no absolutely that's why I actually I wanted to write a history of adulthood but I was trying to think about who actually thinks about adulthood and who actually engages with social constructions of adulthood and you're right it's children and young people more than adults themselves because they're constantly asked to do it and actually a lot of the studies they use for this project are essay collections or cohort studies but they've been asked to reflect on things like what will my life be like when I'm 25 or what will I be like when I'm grown up so they're being given these by adults explicitly as topics um yeah so um I would say that they have because these things are written for adult consumption because they are either taking part in research projects run by adults or sort of cohorts that are run by adults or, or they're writing essays in school where teachers are obviously adults um you do very much get a sense of what they think they should be thinking about adulthood so you get adulthood is sort of very responsible very dutiful very self-sacrificing selfless and adolescence is kind of irresponsible and selfish and freedom and there's often quite a sharp dichotomy between like when I'm an adolescent I'll have fun because these are the years to have fun and then when I'm an adult I'll have to be completely responsible this time and I won't have any fun it'll be awful um so it's quite a bleak picture of adulthood in many ways but I don't and I, I, it's not so much that I think this is necessarily what they actually thought adulthood would be like but it's certainly what they think they should be aspiring to what they think adults want them to write um and there's also quite an interesting move that a lot of them make where they basically say other teenagers are really irresponsible and do x y and z i don't do that so basically there's a way of moving away from this sort of stigmatized teenage category and positioning themselves more as young adults as people who are becoming adults already because they recognize the irresponsibility of their fellow teenagers that's really interesting it's like using the fact that it is a a stage with kind of some dynamism and fluidity to it to to kind of and use that in your own favor of like you know this is a stage I'm moving through so you know I can kind of claim to be a step ahead of everybody else um yeah yeah definitely um so I guess this brings us on to kind of one of the the last things I thought we could um I'd really like to hear about um so your current project it sounds like you're talking to young people and oral testimony also forms or you're using young people sources sorry um and your previous work also used a kind of real range of sources and I mean sources is obviously one of the big discussions um that we have in the histories of childhood and in the history of education I was wondering did you did you find it a kind of a challenge to figure out what sources would be useful for the book um and 
did your ideas about your sources change as you were writing? Mm. Yeah, it's the meeting of kind of two fields that have source issues, isn't it? Because obviously in the history of education, you have like the black box of the classroom and the idea that you can't access historical classroom practice and what actually happened in schools. And then in the history of childhood, you have this idea that children don't leave very many traces in history, so it's difficult to access their experiences. Um, and kind of with this book, I used a very wide eclectic range of sources to try and like not completely contradict those ideas, but I guess challenge them to some extent to say, actually, we can find traces of childhood experience. And obviously we can't actually know exactly what it was like to be in the classroom in this period, but we can certainly get at real practice in schools more than perhaps people have argued in the past. Um, so, yeah, I kind of just traced um, ideas about childhood through this sort of wide range of sources, sort of from the very top down to the sort of the very bottom up. So, you know, starting with something like psychological texts, which people like Piaget, tracing down to teaching manuals and sort of guides for practicing teachers and works that I knew were frequently, for example, set in teacher training college courses. So things that teachers are actually reading, um, sort of wider teaching memoirs, curricula of teacher training college courses, then down to like teaching press, like magazines like Teachers World and the teacher that some teachers read in this period. Um I did use a little bit of oral history work, some archived oral history interviews in the book and a small number that I conducted myself with retired teachers. It's a little bit of oral history, not a huge amount and quite a lot more self-narrative stuff. Um, and then for the sort of very local level, I used school log books. Um, so the book that the headmaster of the school would have to keep about the sort of day-to-day goings on at the school, which are mostly very boring. But if you look at them across a wide period of time, you sort of get, you can actually see incrementally child-centered education kind of creeping into often very isolated rural schools and some of the uh, um, local authorities that I was looking at. So just things like the school inspector brought some poster paint today or the school or, or somebody, our, our desks were removed and we got rid of the fixed desks and we now have tables. And actually that is, you can see in practice, that is child-centered. But the idea of movable furniture rather than fixed desks is child-centered. The idea of having bright classrooms with poster paint is child-centered. So you can see it kind of on a very practical sort of basic level creeping into these these schools over the course of the period covered by the book, which is 1918 to 79. Yeah, it's one of the things I really, really enjoyed about the book is that you're drawings and like it's like okay and one of the things I like about history of childhood is like okay it is challenging but that's fine because you can just draw on this vast body and piece together these tiny little fragments that are actually if you understand it very meaningful um and very important um so your current work on school children what kind of sources or your current research that you mentioned um mm-hmm. so you're going to be working with yep so my current project is on um how children and adolescents understand adulthood from about 1945 to 89 actually I've been deliberately restrictive of my sources for this one and I obviously use contextual material but my main body of sources are only contemporary writings by children and young people so only things that are actually written at the time of people under the age of about 21 um I deliberately chose to do this so one obvious way to get this is to use oral oral history testimony um to speak to people about their remembered childhood and adolescence um which I have used in the past and I will use again in the future. But for this project, I didn't want to use it because I wanted to listen to children and adolescents speaking about being young when they were still young. So before they lose that subjectivity, that speaking from a certain standpoint gives you. Um, once you're an adult, I think, is, is it Caroline Stephen that says the child grows up and goes away? Um, it's Caroline Stephen. Um, <laughs> God, if I've miscited that. Um, so... Obviously, I, th- I don't think 
I think you can learn a lot from people's memories of their childhoods. But I think that if you want to specifically look at how children and young people think about age, think about growing up and think about adulthood, then you really want to think about it at the time before they become adults when they're still that they're still in that particular subject position. Um, and luckily for this period, there is an absolute wealth of writing produced by children and young people. So obviously I'm lucky in that respect. Obviously this approach would not be possible for many historical periods or places, but um, there's no shortage of it in Britain. So yeah that's that's my main source base they're wonderful sources as well I mean it's I, as you know I work on children's writing so I'm a big fan of it as a source do you ever get people kind of questioning this as a source um it's something obviously I deal with all the time yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people often say things like, as I, we've had this conversation before, of course, but often say things like, um, oh, they're just influenced by adults. So they were just writing what adults wanted them to say. Um, so you can't tell anything from that, which is very weird because actually I'm really interested in what adults wanted them to say. And it's a record of it. So that in itself is useful to me. I don't think that's what children do. You know, I, I think also children write what they want to write. But um, even if they were just doing that, that would still be absolutely fascinating. Um Sometimes people actually question the authenticity of the writing because a lot of it is very eloquent. And they say, did a kid really write that? You know, was it edited? And they're not edited sources, but people have a very clear idea in their heads of how children and teenagers write. And of course, how teenagers and children wrote in the past is also different from how they write nowadays because um, the, the generation I'm looking at would be very used to writing a lot more I think than perhaps current day children and teenagers are at least in this format of like long form handwriting. Um, and yes, yeah, so they question like whether they actually wrote it um, or whether they understood what they were writing. Um, and it, yeah, I do find it frustrating because, of course, you could, you could say the same thing about adult writers, about how they're influenced by what people tell them or do they understand what they were writing or, you know, are they copying or and adult writers, of course, are influenced and they do copy of other people. And um, so it's really in the same set of questions that you have of any kind of written self-narrative source. Um, I don't think there are particular problems of using sources written by children and young people in this respect. Yeah, I often think it maybe makes me think that the person asking it is too naive in their own handling of their sources because they don't go in with those kind of questions. Of, they assume that the person is writing entirely out of their own intent, um, which isn't the case of, of anybody at all. Um, and I think it brings us back quite nicely, the idea that children can't write about difficult or complex things to that idea you talked about earlier where, um, you know, children are thought to be egotistical and centred on their own immediate tangible experiences of the world. So they can't possibly know literary form or sort of complex phrasing because it's something that's outside of their reach. Mm. Yeah, it's odd because... We know that children read and so we should realise that actually children have contact with literary forms and storytelling forms and they copy them and like like adults do, they copy them and they kind of play with them. Um, it's certainly, if I look, my look at what I wrote when I was a kid, almost all of it is basically copies of Jacqueline, Jacqueline Wilson, who obviously I read a lot of as a child. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, so I think we can probably finish up soon, Laura, but is there anything um that you would like to promote are there any other works that you think um, our listeners should be looking at um well, i'm just i'm just finishing up this project on adulthood which i 
uh, was funded by the Leverhulme Trust, which is now coming to a close. I've started to publish from this project. So, so far, I've only published one article I would say that directly draws on these findings. And it's an article I recently published in Gender and History. Um, I can't remember the full title, but the start of it is what a difference it was to be a woman and not a teenager, which is a quote from one of my young writers. Um, so that, I think, is in Gender and History Open Access at the moment. It's not actually an issue. It's in like advanced access. But yeah, so if you want to hear more about my ideas about adulthood and how teenagers worry about adulthood, particularly teenage girls in this period, then you can check that article out. Um, and yeah, as I say, I've, I'm gossing between projects in this interview, but my future research will be on terminally and chronically ill children and adolescents. So that's the next project and nothing on that yet, but that's what I'll be doing in future years. That's so exciting. I'll just read out the full title. It's what a difference it was to be a woman and not a teenager, adolescent girls' conceptions of adulthood in 1960s and 1970s Britain, which is in gender and history. And the title of Laura's book, which we've just been discussing, is A Progressive Education, How Childhood Changed in Mid-20th Century English and Welsh Schools. Um, which is from Manchester University Press. Um, Thank you so much, Laura. No, thank you, Catherine. That was great. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.